Hey there, Cloud Unfiltered listeners. This is Ali Amagasu, and I just wanted to take a minute to let you know that we are aware of the diminished sound quality we've been uh, experiencing over the last few episodes, and we're sorry about that. We hope you'll hang with us. We did have some instability issues with the platform we were previously recording on. Uh, So we moved to a new platform. That one is stable as can be, but the audio quality isn't as good. So we're moving to yet another platform, and uh, we hope you'll be patient with us in the meanwhile. We think the content quality is still terrific. It's just not going to be the most amazing listening experience you've ever had. So hang in there for one or two more episodes. After that, we'll be on our new platform, and everything ought to be back to normal. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate it. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good whatever it is wherever you are today. I'm Ali Amagasu, and you're listening to the latest episode of Cloud Unfiltered. Before I introduce our guest, I'll introduce my co-host, Pete Johnson, who you all know, and you know he generally broadcasts from the underground nerd lair in upstate Michigan. But today, I can see him on our video call. It is clear he's not in the nerd lair. Where are you today, Pete I'm Johnson? not. I've been, I've been freed from the underground nerd lair. I am coming to you today from DevNet Create. Uh, which is Cisco's developer conference put on our put on by our good friends at the DevNet team, and it's being hosted this year at the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, California. So if you hear some background noise, it's because it it turns out sometimes at conferences it's hard to find quiet places. And and I have a nerd joke that you have to be of a certain age to to get. All right, let it rip. Okay, so I was talking to a millennial developer yesterday, and I said the first time I was at this building, it was Ed, it was SGI corporate headquarters, and he said, "What's SGI?" <laughs> I can actually see that sign in my head. I've driven by it so many times. Yeah, I know it, exactly yeah. what that lowercase SGI. Yeah, that's the building I'm in there. right now, and there's a very cool old IBM. Like if you've ever been on Spaceship Earth. At Epcot, like the second to last scene, you go through like a, a makeshift data center. It's that style IBM machine they have in a room here. So very, very cool stuff to take a look at. Lots of good conversations here at DevNet Create. And yeah, it's, yeah, I remember when this building was under construction is how old I am. So <laughs> it's kind of cool to, to come back here for another conference. That must have been an important conference for them to lure you onto a plane. I know the big man resists oh, getting onto I a know. plane whenever he yeah. can. You know, six foot six inches and conventional economy seeds do not mix well. So, yes. No, no. Well, good. I'm glad you're there. It sounds like you're having a good time. Hey, let's introduce our guest today. Welcome, Javed Sikander. You're the CTO of Cloud Services at NetEnrich, and we are pleased to have you with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Super excited to be here. So, Javed, I, um, I did a little research on you prior to the show. And my understanding is that you guys over at NetEnrich help enterprises adopt cloud. And what that immediately uh, made me think is, why can't they do it themselves? What, what challenges are these guys running into that, uh, that they need to reach out to somebody for help? And I realize that opens a whole Pandora's box of questions that I'll let Pete get in on too. But, but if you can summarize for me, what, why are, what are customers coming up against? What are they struggling with that they need help from you guys? Yeah, that's uh, that's a very good question. The uh, what we have seen, Allison, you know, we primarily work with mid-market and enterprise customers, and one of the things that we see is the clearly the skill gap, if you will, when it comes to cloud. 
we have folks, you know, who have been managing traditional data centers. You know, there have been uh, uh, folks who have been managing hardware and the OS that is running on it and maybe the workloads. But when it comes to cloud, the idea is that it's a managed platform. That means that anything below the uh, hypervisor, if you will, you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to worry about the fan going out on your uh, on your server, right? for example, or your network switches or your storage devices. What you have to worry about is how best to use the cloud and um, do you want to move your workloads as is into the cloud or refactor to the new stack in the cloud, um, which is where you see the real value of the cloud, which is not just an IAS infrastructure, but also as a platform. And there we see that um, customers who want to get there faster, you know, it's all about time to market. Obviously, their teams are ramping up very quickly and they're working through, you know, understanding and, and growth and, and whatnot. But since they want to get there quickly, get, get there today, you know, they work with uh, folks like us. And we have many customers where we come in and we help uh, build out their cloud practice uh, or sort of their cloud team and their cloud um, um, uh, skill sets as as we build out their you know first few workloads into the cloud and then um, then we take a role where we are managing and monitoring that environment and then future cloud adoption their teams are taking over and doing it on their own so which is perfectly fine model that we work with so I think that that's one of the reasons which is the um, uh, if you will the skill gap uh, that cloud brings. Yeah, that makes sense. There's just not enough guys out there that are able to do it. I know when I went to start work for a startup, oh, five or six years ago now, at the time, you know, you were kind of a unicorn if you could, uh, if you really had a handle on, on cloud. They, could, they couldn't find enough people that, that had that skill set. And uh, <laughs> it sounds like there's still that same, that same issue. Um, are customers coming to you with the same, with different problems now than they were, say, six months or a year ago? Um, yes, uh, so we, we see a, a sort of like a um, maturity model that we, we kind of use when we're working with the cloud. So we have customers who are um, beginning to see the value of the cloud. They want to, um, you know, maybe their data center leases are up for renewals and they're looking at, hey, you know, if I move my um, workloads into the cloud, is that going to uh, offer me a bit better TCL than what we have in my private data centers? So we start there, but then a lot of customers who have kind of gone over that hurdle now are looking at, can I refactor my application? Can I start using the underlying platform from the you know major cloud providers like AWS or Azure? So for in case of Azure, can I move my SQL instances into Azure SQL? Or can I refactor my applications and start using some of the building blocks like service bus for messaging or whatnot. So um, what we call that um, in the Microsoft term is application modernization. So we see customers who start out as, I want to see cloud as simply from a cost benefit, TCO benefit point of view, but then very quickly they migrate into, can I fully leverage the platform and create a more agile, you know, more DevOps um, kind of a model, and can I modernize my infrastructure and my applications? So we are seeing 
lot more of those in the past year or so. I wouldn't say six months, but in the past year or so. So I think customers have crossed over that first hurdle, if you will, or first bump, are now looking at fully uh, exploiting the cloud stack, the platform. Interesting. So it sounds like they're a little more sophisticated than they were, say, a year ago. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Interesting. So you, you were talking about transitioning, you know, legacy applications to the cloud or migrating them. What applications are you most likely to run up against and just say, you know what, don't waste your time. This is going to, this is not going to the cloud. You know, so there, there is, um, it's very interesting. You know, we have come across, uh, everything from old COBOL applications to applications return to do fax services. I mean, um, there are still customers who use, um, you know, a lot of this, uh, legacy that, that is working and there's no reason to get rid of it. So there's, there's a, there's a lot of the old legacy applications where they're running just fine and the, the code that has been built has been frozen for the past 25, 30 years. Right. Fine on premise. So we have seen customers saying, okay, let's not touch this. You know, let's focus on moving my virtual uh, desktop environment, move my, you know, databases, my storage, um, you know, and let's not worry about this part. So we do a detailed analysis. Uh, the way we approach this problem, Allison, is that we do a very detailed analysis of our customer's environment when we start, where we look at every workload that is running, um, we look at, uh, the, you know, all the servers, the, the, we collect the performance data on the servers. Um, we look at all the storage, we look at the network and we come up with a roadmap where we, we work with the customers and identify what are the applications you want to first move to the cloud. So we come up with this roadmap of first to move, next to move, and also the ones that should remain on premise, you know, and then we go and execute on that migration strategy. Makes sense. Pete, if you're listening in on this, uh, do you have any questions for Javis? Yeah. So along those lines, are there are there kind of key indicators that are that that when you see them, you're like, okay, th this makes it easy to put this in the stays on prem kind of bin. Like is like there's no COBOL in the cloud, right? So like is it that kind of thing where you're looking at, you know, is this some ancient language or is it something that hasn't been modified in X amount of years or I mean, are there some rules of thumb you look yeah. at when you're deciding which apps should stay on-prem? Yeah. So anything that is already virtualized, it's running in VMs on-premises. In a, you know, so anything that's already virtualized is easy to move because you know a VM running on-premise now your VM running in the cloud. Um, if the workloads are not virtualized, then there are certain workloads that cannot be. You know, basically because of the languages that has been returned, the way it is designed, or whatever, you know, other reasons maybe. So the workloads that are not um, virtualizable, if you will, are something that we do not uh, recommend touching in the first phase. But what we do uh, offer is that once you go and migrate most of your workloads that are already virtualized and can be virtualized, uh, then we want to help customers refactor and maybe rewrite some of that functionality to the new stack. You know, we, we have a customer that we work with where they had 18 different workloads 
some legacy applications, and they had a fax service, you know, where, you know, when they receive some orders, you know, they will fax, the machines will go and fax these uh, POs, if you will, right, back to the customers or something. So uh, we said, look, you know, let's let's not uh, migrate this as is for now. Let's work on migrating the rest of your infrastructure. Then we rewrote that fax service natively into Azure using some of the, you know, fax services that are uh, available out there. So instead of moving that whole code base as is, we decided to tackle that problem by refactoring that, achieving the same functionality for a newer stack. So now, just just so I understand that one. So, so did you say fax service as in facsimile? Yes. <laughs> okay. So just quick aside, I'm, and I'm sorry to go down two two old guy rat holes in the same podcast, but so I worked at HP Cloud when we were launching that as a competitor to Amazon Web Services, and I remember having a conversation with corporate legal where we were coming up with the terms and conditions and the the user the user information that we needed to obtain legally in order for them to to be an HP customer and there was a line item for what what fax number would they like to be contacted at and i said if they wanted to be contacted by fax i don't want them using our cloud <laughs> Is, so so that that like blows my mind that people are like so that's that's like a perfect example that well we do have this business process where people send faxes and you had to be like um, we might want to rewrite that. Like, did the conversation ever come up with the, um, we might want to nuke that and change it to an email service or an SMS <laughs> notification or like, did that part of that conversation come up? Yes, but this is a, this was a healthcare customer. So you know how it is. Even if they want to modernize, they have to work with the whole value chain and that value chain is not modernizing anytime soon. So, you know, there are legal reasons, there are technology reasons, uh, but, you know, although we couldn't get rid of the fax service, we did move it to the new stack. So they didn't have to manage this bulky server on premises. Right, right. Okay, well, mad props. I've not heard of someone moving a facsimile service to the cloud, but the fact that you've done that is, is awesome sauce. Well done. Right. I think um, healthcare and mortgage are the last two industries, right? Yeah, uh, I know right. that the last time I used a fax, it was definitely for a refinance. So they're still clinging nice. fairly tightly to that technology as well. Yeah, that's true. Even though even in healthcare, we have seen a significant adoption of cloud. One of the customers that we worked with uh, was doing the HL7 message processing uh, you know, in a very old ETL tool, and they wanted to move that into the cloud so that they have this whole elastic, um, you know, kind of availability of compute and uh, storage for their peak loads. So they didn't have to, you know, go and build that on premises. In the cloud on demand, they can, you know, increase the uh, compute and storage as they need. So they wanted to uh, move that into the cloud, and that's a very good case that we see again and again which is, you know, a lot of the collaborative workflows between the different parties in the value chain are, are right, you know, uh, examples of moving into the cloud because of the, you know, the platform services like service based in case of Azure that allows you to do, do these things at scale at a very, uh, you know, at a very uh, economical numbers, you know. I think uh, Microsoft has two or three different types of 
uh, event and message processing services and they they charge like few cents for you know 100,000 messages or something like that so uh, you know very efficient services out there so we do see a lot of scenarios like that in healthcare nice well since since you brought up um, Microsoft's here a couple of times I, I want to ask you about something that's kind of top of mind in the industry in the last couple of weeks and then I want to ask you about a, a, another non-healthcare use case that you guys advertise on your website so there's been a lot of talk lately about like Azure versus AWS and who's really leading the public cloud game. And there's some that would accuse one or both of those companies into sort of cloud washing some of the revenue streams that they're claiming. But but you, you see this on the front lines in terms of what people are asking for given the use cases that they're trying to implement. What are you seeing in terms of usage between those two relative to, you know, the more distant competitors like Google maybe Alibaba or even IBM? Yeah, so we primarily see Azure and AWS. Those, seem to, those two cloud providers seem to be pretty much covering 80, 85% of the market, at least the, the market that we see in mid-market and enterprise. We have heard a few Google cases, we have heard a few Alibaba, uh, but definitely both AWS and Azure has a three to five years head start on everybody else. You know, while some of these other providers may be thinking about infrastructure services, you know, um, what they have about 250 different building block, you know, path, platform as a service, um, services and native services in, in both Azure and AWS. So we primarily see Azure and AWS 80% of the time. And then a little bit about Google. We, we heard about IBM. We have uh, one customer who, Asked us to do something in IBM, but you know, it's relatively small and far and few. Javid, okay, are so your customers um, primarily in the U.S.? Because I think of the I think of the Azure big market share as being in Europe. Yes, that's a good point. Yes, so we, we have North America and Europe, and you know, we we go to market directly, uh, but our bigger go to market strategies we work with partners. So in Europe, we are working with a very large distributor to transform uh, MSPs and their customers to the to the Azure platform. Aha. So and, right and when now. people and when people adopt these things, are are you seeing them throw caution to the wind when it comes to lock in concerns? Is that a thing anymore? Like if I'm gonna choose AWS, am I gonna go all in and use RDS? Or are you seeing people that are still like hanging on to the, to running their own VMs with MySQL or Oracle? Yeah, so we, what we have seen is mid-market customers, they make a bet on AWS or Azure or whatever their cloud platform is, and then they go all in, right? So they want to use as much as the core platform uh, because of the synergies that it brings, you know, simplicity of the architectures. And sure, more. sure. Um, That's certainly but, the upside, yeah. Yeah, but larger enterprises that we work with, they have more of a multi-cloud strategy. For various reasons, you know, they have multiple teams, various different departments, and each department have their own, uh, you know, I mean, cloud is kind of a religion, right? I mean, there are some teams who absolutely bet their paychecks on AWS. There are other teams who want to do the same thing on Azure. So in larger enterprises, what we see is different departments, different teams going and uh, working with different types of platforms, Azure, AWS, and even some Google. And they are comfortable with the multi-cloud strategy because of 
the whole lock-in and the fear of, you know, kind of having only one neck to choke, if you will. So, but that also comes with its, you know, downside, which is now you're looking at a, a skill set that is spanning multiple clouds. So for most of the smaller and mid-market customers, you know, that's very hard to have. You know, either you, so, so what we see is mid-market and smaller customers uh, that we work with, they tell us, hey, I have a data center. I want to move a lot of this stuff into the cloud. Can you give me an analysis of what it would look like in AWS and Azure both from a cost point of view, from the effort estimates? And a lot of the customers who are existing .NET environments, um, you know, they're using SQL, you know, they, they're running on Windows Server, they're using Hyper-V, you know, their choices tend to be obviously moving to Azure. We do see a lot of Linux workloads in Azure as well. In fact, uh, last month we got rewarded from Microsoft for moving a lot of Linux into, into Azure. So we see that too. Uh, but yeah, I think the pattern that we see is mid-market customers tend to bet on one cloud and go with it fully all in. A larger enterprises like multi-cloud strategy. That's super interesting, but that makes complete sense. Thanks for sharing that. Are, are you seeing that when they make those choices, is, is cost the the overriding factor, or or are they also looking at things like iteration speed and how how easy or difficult it's going to be to make changes to whatever those applications are long term? Yeah, most of the data center to to the cloud migration first phases that we have, you know, cost plays a role, but after that, it's more about which platform I'm more comfortable with. You know, so if I have existing skill sets around Microsoft platform, I would rather offer a SQL Server or a Cosmos DB rather than, you know, sure. or a DynamoDB or something, right? So people, I think uh, what we have seen is people um, make their decision based on their skill sets as well. So cost plays a role. Interesting, yeah. Skill sets plays a role, uh, definitely. Hmm, yeah, so I don't want to have to retrain my people. That's, exactly. That makes sense as well. Yeah. Well, let me, so that, that dovetails nicely to, um, you've got an interesting blurb on your website about some DevOps implementations that you've done for a video game developer. Um, so that, that seems, I mean, there, there's certainly, there, there's certainly value in doing like brownfield application migration, which it sounds like you do your, your mm -hmm. share of. But this one sounded a little more cutting edge. Can you tell us a little bit more about that experience? Yes. So uh, this particular example is where, you know, so the DevOps and cloud kind of uh, get boxed into the kind of the same, you know, idea most of the time, but you can have DevOps without having cloud. DevOps is all about your agility and automation to build and deploy changes faster, right? So uh, in the old model, you know, when I started coding in, what, 94, for my first uh, role, uh, I was uh, uh, with a startup called I2 Technologies in Dallas, building supply chain software, writing C++ code. So, you know, we were, we, we automated all our build environment, all our incremental build, wrote a bunch of these scripts and, but, you know, still we released software maybe once in six months, you know, and, uh, you probably- Yeah, that was moving back then. <laughs> yeah. Once every six months, you were, you were a pioneer. <laughs> and we would do minor releases maybe every three months or so. Yeah. Yeah. Now you're talking about, uh, you know, I have a live site, 
and I want to be able to push changes pretty much, you know, any time in the day. And if the changes are not working, something breaks down, I want to be able to roll back, right? So that agility of being able to deploy when and where you want and being able to experiment with some of your new features and whatnot and roll back, DevOps and the tooling that comes with DevOps give you, gives you that agility. So in, this, in case of this particular customer, we help them move from, you know, probably doing one release every week to be able to do, you know, like uh, 30, 40 game releases uh, every week instead of, you know, one. So we, we saw a 30 to 40 times improvement. And the way we did that is we worked with them on automating the entire flow of how uh, new features or fixes gets pushed to the, you know, kind of the dev from dev to test to prod environments and the testing that runs on it and what happens in case of rollback. So we automated that whole flow of deployment of new features. And uh, as a result of that, they were able to achieve that, that agility. Do you guys spend a lot of time training? Because I imagine it wouldn't just be implementing the technology, but it would be, uh, you've got this team that's used to doing something one way, and now they have to figure out how to adapt to this new technology. Yes. So, you know, we, we offer uh, managed services, which is once you're in the cloud, we monitor and manage your cloud environment. And what we have seen with some customers is they work with us as they're learning the ropes. And, then, you know, they, their teams are up and running. You know, they kind of insource that, if you will. And we are perfectly fine with that model. Uh, and then they work with us on other things, like, you know, maybe refactoring and modernizing their stack while they're taking care of, you know, monitoring and managing their existing applications. So in terms of training, we have seen customers who say, hey, I want my guys to uh, look over the shoulder every time and see what you guys are doing so that we can learn, you know, how do you go create a VNet in Azure? How do you, you know, right-size the VNs? How do you deploy that? How do you set up storage? You know, we want our team to, obviously there is a lot of training from both Azure and AWS, online trainings and certifications and all that, but people like to, so what we do is we create a sort of like a joint scrum team with our customers and they work with us in one scrum team and we work as part of their team to go drive some of this transformation. And as, as part of the process, they learn a lot and they are able to do things on their own as well. You know, I have one more question, Pete. I don't know if you have any others before we wrap up, but I, I'm yeah. wondering... Oh, you go ahead. I wanted I wanted to nerd out on just one other thing. I yeah. There's just... Javed, I wanted to ask philosophically about one thing. So, so to get that volume, that release volume, to get like 30, 40 a week, you you got to really have your automated testing just nailed, right? Or else that, that ecosystem doesn't work. Are you seeing, and, and I know I'm in the minority on this one, I am not a fan of unit tests, but I'm a huge fan of integration tests. So do you see a difference there between, like, what a really good test harness looks like to get that volume of repeatable releases and do 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 they lean more towards full integration test versus versus unit test or, or are you still seeing value in unit test? Yeah. So the transformation that you know we have seen Pete in our industry is that the whole thing is driven development TDD, which is the idea that developers are writing a lot of these unit testing and kind of ensuring that before they check in their code, their code works flawlessly. 
but most of the test harnesses that we build for achieving that agility are more on the integrated testing side. I completely agree with you. So there is, we see more integrated and scenario level testing rather than unit testing at, uh, you know, individual subroutine or code level. Those things right. are supposed to be handled by the developers, ensure that, you know, they, they write test driven development and they make sure that unit testing is done at, at that level. More, I mean, even larger organizations that like Microsoft are significantly reduce their test, uh, test teams, testing teams, because a lot of that function is now moved into development only. So development right. is all those tests and ensuring that their code works. It's more of integrated testing, scenario level, um, that, that we are automating and building. Yeah. Cause I, cause I, I, I never saw much of the value in, if, if I write, if I write a function, I didn't ever see much value in, all right, if I pass some fake data into that function well, I, and I hook it up to some fake data source, well, I get the right fake answer back. I never really saw the value in that as opposed to let's go deploy it into an environment and let's make the REST API call like the front end of the client is going to be and let's make sure that it can connect to the NoSQL store correctly. Like let's test this thing end to end. It sounds like you're seeing that. You're seeing more value in that than the traditional unit testing, is what I hear you saying. Yes. Awesome. So my last question was was around um, hybrid cloud. I mean, you're obviously it sounds like in the business of helping customers move to public cloud, but uh, but the fact that you know Amazon and Google and other providers have come out with on-premises cloud solutions suggests that there's some momentum for either doing something with your applications that can't go to the public cloud, or maybe it's because of data gravity, or for whatever reason, some things are just not going to go to the public cloud. So people are interested in a cloud-like experience on-premises. Are you seeing a desire? Are you, first off, what are you seeing as far as that out in the field? And second, are, is there a desire to create a real seamless hybrid cloud experience? Are they asking you for that yet? Yeah. So yeah, so there are three terms essentially, right? So multi-cloud, we already talked about that a little bit. Yeah. And then private cloud is, you know, I want to run a cloud-like stack on-premise, maybe in a, you know, hyper-converged hardware or something, you know, I may run OpenStack or I can run Azure Stack from Microsoft and, um, you know, I want to create my private cloud. And then there's hybrid, which is, you know, I may have certain services running on-premises, certain services running in the cloud, public cloud, and then I want to create the seamless experience from a user's point of view where the user doesn't really care. You know, they, they want to submit a PO, they want to look at a health record or something, right? right. So number one, what we see is that the cloud providers, both AWS and Azure, has very strong private cloud offerings now, right? And they've worked with hardware vendors, you know, in case of Microsoft, they're six uh, like Lenovo and a bunch of other others, HP, uh, they have worked with on providing a, a full stack, you know, hardware plus the platform and some of the services, like in case of Azure, the Azure App Service has complete parity between what runs on on-premise and what runs in the cloud. And they're offering this at a OpEx model. So you don't have to pay for all of this stuff, you know, at one time. You can pay uh, a monthly, a certain, a certain amount of uh, fees for that, right? So they are going with that model. So we see this model primarily uh, in cases where there is a lot of data privacy concerns and data sovereignty concerns, where I don't want my data to leave my four walls for whatever reason, right? 
and financial services, uh, you know, public sector, and even healthcare. That seems like a now you would say, you know, hey, so if you're running it in your environment, why do you need to run it in a private cloud? You know, why don't you do it the old way? Well, the advantage there is that number one, at some point in future, if I want to move the services to a public cloud, I could do it very easily. But also, the more and more tooling that you see is being built for, you know, a cloud paradigm or a cloud platform, cloud architecture, if you will. So I want to have the same experience of on-demand and scale-out and all those characteristics, but I want to keep that on-premises. So we see a lot of that in the private cloud world. Now, on the hybrid side, well, from our, we offer a managed services platform and service where it really doesn't matter where your workloads are running, whether they're on-premises, whether they are running in Azure, AWS, we will provide a single pane of glass view of all your resources across all these different uh, you know, clouds. In one place, you could monitor, manage everything through a kind of like a single pane of glass kind of a uh, monitoring management platform. So we offer that as a solution, and, and that's exactly what the customers are looking for, which is, you know, um, when it comes to the deployment, yes, I have these different models, private, hybrid, multi-cloud, but when it comes to users' experience, it, or when it comes to monitoring and management experience, I want to see everything in one place. Yeah, that makes sense. So would you say that it's, if all of your customers have something like this going, would you say it's 50%, 75%? Um, you know, so I would say make more like 25, 30% customers are multi-cloud and hybrid. You know, um, the mid-market customers that we primarily work with, that is our sweet spot. You know, they are, you know, generally it's a journey. It takes time for them to completely move out of, their data centers into a public cloud, but once they make that decision, you know, they want to get there. Obviously, as they're getting there, they still have a lot of hybrid. They still have a lot of stuff running in their data centers. But their goal is eventually to move everything, not only into the cloud, but maybe refactor some of their legacy and move to SaaS services. You know, so that's, that's um, you know, what we see in the mid-market. Obviously, enterprises are different. Right, right. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, I thought our, our audience might like to know kind of what percentage of their peers are are doing that versus what they're doing. So thank you for that insight. That was my last question. Pete, how about you? No, I'm good. I'm going to go nerd out at the IBM 1401 that got downstairs like you might see in later seasons of Mad Men. <laughs> right, right. Well, we'll have a good time at your at your uh, event. And uh Doc, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing with us what you're seeing out there in the field. I think it's helpful for uh, members of our audience who are, you know, wrestling with cloud themselves and trying to figure out the uh, the best way to approach it. Thank you. All right. Yeah, thanks for the time, And we hope you'll uh, come back and join us sometime in the future. Good day.